This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Hey, this is Zac Efron, and you're listening to the Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Join us tonight as we welcome activist and award-winning actress Gabrielle Union, who will share with us her efforts as a breast cancer advocate. Then we'll tackle the hard-hitting issue of fertility rights and surrogacy options for young adults affected by cancer with John Weltman with Circle Surrogacy, ovarian cancer survivor Jen Rackman, and breast cancer survivor activist Alice Creasy with Fertile Future. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. And with that, a brief self ingratiating applause. Hello, Kenny. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Oh, I forget your name. No, I'm kidding. Annie. I know Annie. I know I'm kidding. Because you're just, you're just not important. Oh, not, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. With those um, inflatable t- tires on your chest. Yeah, they feel like it sometimes. You were complaining about them before. Tell us about them. They, I got them inflated. Anyone who's had breast cancer understand and had a mastectomy uh, knows the feeling of t- uh, tissue expanders, and they basically feel like you have cantaloupes underneath your skin. Right. My, my mother-in-law's 
first cousin just had a bilateral mastectomy mm-hmm. for stage zero and a half or something, breast cancer. And she is going through the exact same experience now. I mean, yeah. she's like 68 or 69 years old. But even still, she com- her face, she's just in pain. It's, it, it's horrible, isn't it? It's not horrible. It's well, it means to an end, right? Yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. Right. But, yeah, so they're kind of, you know... They're there. But you'll be rocking it in Vegas, then. I will. They're going to look awesome in <laughs> Vegas. I can't wait. Just need to hit the gym. I'll be bikini ready. Nice. Yeah. Kenny, what's up? Not much. I'm, I'm enjoying that this is quickly becoming the, the first five minutes, Annie's uh, chest update. Yes. And then it's uh, the Stupid Cancer Show following it. I'm well, cool with it. Well, I mean, I, I just think it's interesting. It's it's a point of order. It's yeah. Like a, it's like a... It's a rite of passage. It's a segment that we do on the show. <laughs> I see an plastic surgeon in about a month, so I'll have another update soon. Well, you guys survived the snowstorm. We did. Well, Kenny, your Long Island was bad, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was, I think it was worse other places, maybe worse northern. Uh, well, parts of Connecticut got like four feet or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's northeast. It snows. It's, it's February. I don't know why everyone was panicking. Everyone's pa- I know everyone was panicking because it's Sandy. Right. Everyone was panicking because it's Sandy, so I get it, but... It was uh, a little bit frustrating that everyone was, um, you know, getting antsy about it when it's winter. Well, we have a special guest in the studio tonight, live from Baltimore in the flesh. Our lovely VP of programs, the lovely and talented Ellie Ward. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah? You look great. Thank you. Better to look good than feel good, I suppose? Always. Or do you feel good? (laughs) (laughs) She's making a scrunch face for radio. (laughs) I guess I'm doing as good as possible, but okay. I, I, I'm feeling pretty good today. Yeah? I've had my second Starbucks, so for anybody that knows me, knows that I'm addicted to Starbucks, I'm doing, that's I'm on good. my first cup, which is very good for me. Kenny, you're on, like, usually on your, like, fifth or sixth by yeah, this time of day. Yeah, I'm on my first cup of tea. Wow. It's like detox over here. Yeah, yeah. Well, she'll be on the segment later in the show, but Jen Rackman is joining us live. Hi, Jen. Hi, everyone. All the way from Staten Island. Ah, ventured so far. Yes, yes, over the Verrazano Bridge. <laughs> and Maddie Beckett live on the radio. Hey, buddy. He's waving from the couch. fabulous engineer waving from the couch. So, Allie, what's going on with uh, you are in charge of the OMG Cancer Summit? I hear that is a, quite a project. Well, in 73 days, to be exact, or 72 days, we will, there's about... About 550 of us that are going to be descending on Las Vegas. Descending, the right word? And yes, and then ascending to the clubs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then imbibing the and then, alcohol. And then, and then finally descending right. yeah. through alcohol. And hanging at the pool. Exactly. So we might have already been there last year, but I still don't think that Las Vegas is ready for us. Because um, we're, you know, being the pretty crazy crew that we are. How many uh, people are actually registered to come, including all of our guests and stuff? Um, I think we have about 300 registered. That so. is extraordinary. We're getting there. That is really, really. And we we were at, like, about this last year. I mean, we had an month, extra month this year, too. We have an extra month this year. So I fully expect we are going to sell out because, um, you know, there's not that many days left. No. Nope. I'm pretty pumped. It's my first one. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And it's also my first time in Vegas, which is kind of crazy because I feel like Ever, ever, ever? Ever. I mean, I've been to Reno. My brother lived there for like a year. Reno, nah. Yeah, Reno's kind of sucky, and I was underage. I wasn't even allowed to like look at a uh, casino. I mean, I've been to Atlantic City, but it's not the same. So I'm super pumped. It's like a whole week of first. First Vegas. First, first Vegas OMG. OMG. And that's it. 
first uh, super boob bikini tacular? No, I went to the beach this summer. Okay, all right, all right, yeah. fine. all right, fine. I had to circle back to where we started. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all about uh, continuity yep. here on the Stupid Cancer Show. It's all about the <laughs> Annie's inflatable boob update. <laughs> that should be your Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. Inflatableboob.tumblr. My Tumblr is actually so I have cancer. So I have cancer. Yeah. Dot Tumblr. So, comma, I have cancer. <laughs> How many conversations did you start like that? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mom. So... I have cancer. Right, exactly. Yeah, okay. I uh, I try not to think about that conversation very often because my mom lives far away. But it was something along that along those lines. Then I hand the phone to my brother. So yeah. So right, really quickly, um, did you guys watch the Grammys? I did not. Did I miss anything important? Mumford and Sons. Mumford and Sons were huge. I Is love that a band. Them. Yes, I'm too old for this. They're great, and I'm. I am. I think Mumford. I think the amazing Mumford from Sesame Street in the seventies. <laughs> um, oh well, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I am I the only one here? Yeah, yes. your, your references. I'm, yeah, I'm cricketing. No idea what you're talking about. All right, well, ask Gabrielle if she knows who Mumford, the amazing Mumford is. Yeah, okay. so Mumford and Sons are an amazing band, and uh, they're at Barclays this week, and the tickets are crazy expensive. And then as soon as they won, I was like, they're about to be more expensive. So I shall be seeing them sometime soon in the future. Okay. I just I saw that um, J-Lo pulled an Angelina Jolie leg dress thing, Indeed. right? Yeah. Did that become a meme on... Yeah, I, I enjoyed the BuzzFeed article that people were dressed up like food. How Beyonce was dressed up like a black and white cookie. <laughs> Katy Perry was dressed up like... Uh, Chocolate mint chip ice cream. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mint chip. Ice chip. Yeah. And the girl with the spikes, she was broccoli. I yes. can't remember oh, who God. that was. Oh, boy. And J-Lo was actually black licorice. Really? Yeah, with her, her dress that sort of went down one leg and then up to the right. I don't know. Fancy. Well, I'm glad that I missed it. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. super exciting for the Stupid Cancer Show. The yeah. only thing, I, the only thing that I saw was like this really horrible throwaway line. They were introducing fun, and Neil Patrick Harris said something like, "A band that should replace the period in his name with an exclamation point." Yes, that was. I was like, oh. I'm not watching the Grammys. I missed that part of it. I'm gonna put on like the Golden Girls or something like that because I'm an old man. I didn't watch it because I was afraid I wouldn't know any of the acts. <laughs> but I just, it would reinforce how old acts we are. Yeah, we just point. we're way too old for this. It's not okay. Well, in any case, it is time to get to our awesome guest tonight. Annie, you're up. So, Gabrielle Union joins us now. She's one of today's hottest stars. Uh, she recently starred in Think Like a Man, based on Steve Harvey's book, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And she's also her hour-long pilot, Being Mary Jane, just got picked up to begin in, in early 2013 on BET. Gabrielle, Welcome. Hey, how are you? How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm good. I hope you've been enjoying our, our ridiculous pre-show banter, a- aimless <laughs> well, meandering. I'm, 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 I'm steadily Googling who the hell Mumford and Sons is. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've been vindicated. If if I, I've been vindicated. Yeah, I don't know Mumford or his kids, and okay. uh, I, d- I don't even know what the, what fun was. I thought it was just sort of a thing, like, oh, we're having some. I didn't know what <laughs> I don't know they're single. I, 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 I'm painfully clueless. All right. Yeah. I, I've been, thank you very much. I, I stand vindicated. I want, to, I want to know the nice island that you've been living on. I, I'd love to be there. Yeah. Well, if, the, if it's not on, like, hip-hop or an R&B station, I have no idea who they All are. Right. They haven't so gotten I'm to the remix yet. <laughs> there are no black people in Mumford & Sons. Really <laughs> That would just be a stab in the dark. Yeah. Uh, we're giving them way too much publicity at this point. Yeah. So, anyway, so back to the... Task at hand, why Gabrielle is joining us. So, 
Gabrielle is an amazing uh, breast cancer advocate. So uh, I actually am a breast cancer survivor, and over the summer I came back to work. I missed work for five months for mastectomy and treatment. I come back to work, and my coworker, his name is Ray, um, he started to ask me all these questions about my treatment, and I'm like, why is this guy working with asking me about breast cancer? And he's telling me about his sister, who is Kristen, the late Kristen Martinez, who... Uh, mm-hmm. You was a very good friend of yours, and Ray told me all the amazing things you've done. So tell us about your relationship with Kristen and all the amazing work you've done. I mean, when you said Ray told me about all the things you've done, I'm like, oh, he told you all this stuff that that we shouldn't talk about. Um, I've been friends with the Martinez family for, you know, they moved into our town, Pleasanton, um, you know, when I was, like in the eighth grade, ninth grade, and I met, you know, uh, Kristen and Ray, and they're awesome and fun, and, you know, we had a lot of crazy, you know, adventures together, and, um, gosh, now it's probably been like seven years um, ago, Kristen, you know, was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer, and and uh, her, you know, prognosis, unfortunately, was sort of built into the diagnosis, and I just kind of became active in trying to just keep her alive for as long as as you know as 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 we could and um i just became proactive with fundraising and and linking up with any organization that was willing to help me and um you know unfortunately she after 5 years she lost her battle and and uh but you know i had one last awesome weekend um with her looking at you know trashy tabloids and and uh debating you know you know which kardashian is the most awesome <laughs> um and she was like you know just don't drop the ball you know, like when I'm gone, just just don't stop. Like don't don't let my death be in vain. And so, you know, me and Ray um, and the rest of their family and all of her friends, we've just tried to, you know, do as much as we can to, you know, keep the breast health movement alive and and to try to educate as many people as possible. You know, I just pulled up her website and I realized that I do know her. I remember her very vividly now that I finally see uh, photos of her. Uh, we probably spoke at dozens of events together. We probably, like, not even ships in the night, like ships in the day, mm-hmm. were at numerous events. Uh, Gabrielle, my name is Matthew, and I had cancer mm-hmm. 17 years ago. So um, I started this organization uh, whose radio show you're on now called Stupid Cancer, and we are all about how cancer affects young adults, whether you've been diagnosed or you were the best friend or you are the sibling or the partner. So coming to... You know, this show for you, I'd love to have you talk about the impact of having your friend have cancer. Issues of did you have guilt? You know, how did you manage your day to day? How did you manage the pressures um, of being possibly, you know, a, a caregiver to a certain extent? Because that's usually the under, under recognized story in a lot of survivor, um, you know, individual personal stories is the impact that it had on the person who was there for the person that ha- was sick or passed away? I mean, with with Kristen and I, we were on opposite coasts for most of that. I mean, there was a, a point where she was, you know, feeling amazing and traveling a lot more. But um, for the most part, you know, I, I lended, you know, a, a shoulder, a, a proverbial uh, shoulder to, to cry on. Um, but it was, you know, through Skype and, and uh, you know, email and phone calls just to, just to try to offer a little levity, um, you know, but her boyfriend and her family and, you know, her New York friends, you know, did most of the heavy lifting. I I just came in with, you know, 
Star Magazine and Us Weekly. I mean, that's huh. just something to sort of take her her mind off of it. And um, you know, through my journey, you know, I, I've I've met so many people through the Young Survivors Coalition, an organization that that was really you know close to with uh, with Kristen. And everybody's situation is different. So like with Kristen, what she wanted was to not talk about cancer, um, to, you know, at least, you know, for, for our bit of time. She wanted Hollywood gossip. She wanted, you know, how our friends from home were doing, just a little something to, you know, take take her mind off of it. And I think um, one of the biggest things that we have to remember is that it's not happening to us because um, a lot of times, you know, as, as, as co-survivors, as, as some people like to call us, um, we make it about us. This is how your cancer makes me feel, you know, and it's like, okay, well, it's it's not really about you, and we have to remember that sometimes the the best thing we can do is just just shut up and let people talk. Um, but you know, every case is different, and some people, you know, you have to kind of figure out what what those needs are, and just try to fit in as best you can and not make it about you. And what are some? You know, I've read a lot of what you've done. I've read your you've written for Huffington Post, and you've done a lot of YouTube videos. What are some of the specific things you've been doing for breast cancer awareness? Um, well, I teamed up with uh, Planned Parenthood and um, uh, Susan G. Komen for the Cure um, organizations. Um, I know sometimes people are like, "Do those go together?" Yes, huh. absolutely. Yeah, they're both um, committed to. Um, well, that's the last awareness. year. I think everyone knows they now go together. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a point where it was a little, a little rocky, but I think everyone got back to the to the goal at hand, which right. is saving lives and offering preventative health care to, to women and um I've just been, you know, any time they ask me to, to come out and speak, whether that be at a Susan G. Komen, you know, race for the cure or Planned Parenthood to make sure that, you know, we don't you know, we don't lose any more funding. Um, you know, I, I just try to get the word out about, you know, where to go for low and no cost. Um, mammograms and and healthcare and and just you know push the message of of um, early detection and preventative care um, as much as they can. But I, I'm I'm literally like a you know an advocate for hire. You know if 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 you know that I'm going to have microphones put in my face, I would right. much rather use that time you know to save lives or to make you know women more proactive about their own healthcare and you know urge people to to put themselves at the top of their own priority list. Um, I do that. So, I, I, well, a quick question for you. You know, Kristen was obviously a young woman. She was a young adult when diagnosed. And a lot of the, the story of the young woman with breast cancer is a very different story than the adult woman with breast cancer because there are so few ways to reduce your risk to get it because the screenings don't really make a difference at that age and mm-hmm. that, you know, you're you're more prone to environmental issues coming in the way and, I even read this report a couple of weeks ago that the stress of Generation X and Generation Y is like 20 times more than it was for our parents in the 60s and 70s at a similar age range, and that has an impact on our wellness. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, the best ways to reach young women with, with, uh, you know, risks, possibly if their sister or their parents had it, or just is there really and honestly a way to get young women who may be invincible in their lives, they're allowed to be in their 20s and just having fun, to be aware that this is a reality? Um, the, the best tool is, for, for young people, social media. Um, and, and not in a, in a preachy sort of way, but just sort of drop in little, little reminders, um, you know, signs. Because a lot of women, a lot of young women that I spoke to, even when they, they get diagnosed early, the, they would 
they're, they're hung up on a lot of things um, that that can help save their lives, whether that be, um, you know, keeping both breasts, whether that means, um, you know, not wanting to lose their hair. Um, and a lot of older survivors, you know, kind of poo-poo it and, and sort of dismiss it as, as vanity, um, you know, in, in spite of, you know, in, in the face of, you know, living or dying and you're worried about your hair. But the reality is young women are concerned about these things. They want to know that they can have kids later on. They want to know um, how this is going to affect, you know, their day-to-day life. And that was absolutely, you know, with Kristen. Um, you know, we're all busy, we're partying, we're doing all this other stuff. She noticed there was a pain in her chest, but, you know, there's always tomorrow. But kind of getting young women to know that um, you have to be proactive about your health. You you can't wait for tomorrow. It's not promised. Um, and in the same way that, that we go, you know, check out, um, you know, men on Facebook or, you know, we, we can Twitter stalk somebody. We can go we can go to the doctor. It takes the same amount of, amount of time um, to put yourself, uh, at, uh, again, at the top of your own priority list. And and I think especially with, like, with, with younger people, period, we feel invincible. We feel like there's always going to be time. Um, and we prioritize everything and everyone else. Um, but we have to make time for ourselves. Um, and I, I can't say that enough. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other, you know, one of the videos I watch, I believe, was for Komen. You talk a lot about the African American community, uh, you know, the lower survival rates. And I know you're doing. Can you explain a little bit on what you're doing specifically to help uh, the African American community and healthcare and breast cancer in general? Yeah, with um, with Susan G. Komen for the Cure, we there's a, there's a, like a subset called the Circle of Promise, which specifically targets African American women. Um, we tend to die from from breast cancer more than any other um, group for, you know, a number of of, um, factors. But, again, you know, uh, when you look at um, high-risk groups, and by high-risk I mean low-income, more likely to not be um, insured, um, more likely to to have cultural barriers um, in the way that stand in the way of you getting proper health care, you're, you you have to um, be out there in the streets. Um, it might not all be on social media. It, it's literally uh, you going going into the community, going into the schools, um, and just laying the facts there. This is these are you know these are the statistics. It's unfortunate. There's you know we're we're trying to change it. You know with research and and everything and, and new treatments coming up every day, but. This is what we're dealing with. We cannot ignore it, um, and we've ha- we've taken a page from um, the HIV and AIDS um, uh, outreach workers, um, and uh, you have to be incredibly blunt and and um, and for- I hate to use the word forceful, but if you have to force your way into a discussion um, to let people know the risks, you have to do that, um, and that's what we try to do with with the Circle of Promise um, through Susan G. Komen, just getting the word out. Trying to hit you at, at church, in churches, um, at schools, at you know your places of business, in the community, um, and just being a, a heavy presence as, as much as we can. And, and just to give you a heads up, we worked with Komen, the Circle of Promise, and the Multicultural Council over the summer last year and produced uh, three broadcasts of this show specifically highlighting disparate communities, one of which was the African-American community. So we are all brushed up on, on, on the, the gross inequities that are out there for this community. So I applaud you for, for getting on that soapbox. It's a, it's a really big deal. Yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, like I, I, they, they, you know, it's, 
as celebrities, and I'm using, I'm absolutely using my finger quotes, as celebrities, yeah. um, they provide a perma soapbox, and it's what you choose to do with it. Um, and you can you choose to, you know, sell your wares and, and, you know, everything else, or you can choose to use it at least partially, you know, some of the time to to sell people on themselves, to sell people on the idea of being proactive about your health care and making yourself the number one priority. Um, I'm going to let Annie have the last question because I, I was told that uh, we only have a small amount of your time, which we really respect. So, Annie? Yeah, so I just want to ask you, you know, what's next for your breast cancer advocacy? You know, I'm truly amazed. I've seen videos of Kristen, seen pictures. Kristen and I have the same oncologist. Um, I just feel I, I've never met her, but I feel like I know her, and I'm very thankful for everything you've done. Um, so I just kind of want to know, you know, what's next for you in your breast cancer advocacy role? You know, it's it's the what's next is always it's it's an everyday thing. Um, you know, so tomorrow, I, I don't have anything planned in terms of you know like talking on a radio show or or you know being on Good Morning America, but you have the conversation like tomorrow I'll be in hair and makeup trailer with you know ten women. That's when you have the conversation. That's when you know you can answer some of the tough questions or point people in the right direction. You don't have to wait for, you know, a, um, a, a ginormous spotlight. You, you have you you have a you can provide your own spotlight. So, it's about every day, you know, just having conversations, honest conversations, encouraging people to talk about and be proactive with their health care. And also, oh gosh, it's probably been about a week ago now. I scheduled you know my my annual mammogram. So it's not just it's not enough to you know, talk to talk to talk the talk. I walk the walk. I'm getting my boobs smushed. I encourage everybody to go to it. Um, you know, it, it's one step of many that can literally save your life. And and so um, it's. You, I just try to live 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 my message every day. You know, however I can help. Well, it, but it, of course there's you know races and races coming up and and more press to do, um, which I I absolutely like today. Take advantage of of any time of microphones in my face. Well, and we're proud to have have put that mic in your face tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> and thank you for joining us, by the way. A million people got to hear about this show. Speaking of social no. media. Oh, well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Well, again, thank you so much for all your work. We we honor and memorialize Kristen um, in our work every single day, working on behalf of young adults affected by cancer. So thanks for your time. Good luck with everything. And hopefully we'll bump into you at some point. Huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe we'll take you know, see Mumford and his kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who's Mumford? Okay, we're the same age, so I totally get you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, All right. Gabrielle Thanks. Union, everybody. That was awesome. That was awesome. Awesome, indeed. awesome, awesome. All right, so let's uh, let's hit up the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All righty, Kenny. What's on the uh, calendar? All right, everybody, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something will be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Coming up this week, we have meetups in Durham, North Carolina, L.A. We have a special event here in New York City on Wednesday night. It's a off-Broadway show of The Man Under at the Athena Theater. We would love to see you there. Uh, followed by meetups in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, meet up in Atlanta, and then we will be at C4YW, the Conference for Young Women Affected by Breast Cancer in Seattle, from the 22nd until the 25th. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. That's man. really awesome. Yes. I'm really impressed. That's pretty awesome. Okay, folks, as I said at the top of the show, Allie Ward is here, our VP of Programs, 
and we are extolling the 6th annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults live at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas, April 25, 6, 7, 8. She's going to kill me for saying 650, so I'll say 550 people will be there, young adults, caregivers, uh, best friends, siblings, uh, spouses, older parents. It's going to be an amazing And Mumford and Sons. And Mumford and Sons. Who? Three-and-a-half-day event of awesome. Visit omg2013.org. That's omg2013.org today and learn more about the Players Club, an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement by fundraising. That's omg2013.org. All right, Matthew, the Stupid Cancer Store has a ton of awesome Stupid Cancer merch for you to wear, sleep in, shower in, dry clean. <laughs> Get the Stupid Cancer shower cap. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, head on over to stupidcancerstore.org. Check it out. Uh, use coupon code BEMINE for a special Valentine's discount. Well, that's right. Valentine's Day is coming up. It is coming oh, up. That's right. It's indeed. Thursday. Okay. I'll be sure to come. And my wife is in the chat room. I love you, baby. Okay. All right. Uh, and then, finally, the uh, Stupid Cancer Forums have really taken off. They have almost 5,000 active members on a day-to-day basis. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org. And sign up with one click through Facebook, and that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. All right, we are going to discuss for the next thirty minutes or so the the gentle and uh, and in in really incredible conversation of fertility rights, patient advocacy, surrogacy, adoption. What's wrong with the system? What's right with the system? And what people can expect from the system, coming from the expertise of fertility advocates, a uh, young adult survivor who is a surrogacy uh, success story, and uh, actual surrogacy organization. So let me first introduce to you, John Weltman is the president and founder of Circle Surrogacy, a world-renowned assisted reproductive tech law expert and the father through surrogacy. Alice Creasy is a young adult breast cancer survivor, published author, and cancer advocate, founder of Fertile Action, a nonprofit organization for fertile women affected by cancer. And Jen Rackman is a five-year, six-year ovarian cancer survivor, nine-year ovarian cancer survivor, and a fabulous success story for surrogacy. Please welcome Jen Rackman, I'm sorry, uh, John Weltman, and Alice Creasy to the Stupid Cancer Show. Hi. Ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Hey, glad to be here. We're really Hi, excited. We're really excited. Hi, Jen. Hi there. And Jen's physically here, so you guys can suck it. <laughs> Hi, Jen. Hi. Hi, John. Very jealous. So, yeah, we're going to spend the next 30 minutes in an awesome roundtable discussing this very serious issue. And I remember back in 2006, way before this organization existed, when I was first getting into advocacy, and a bunch of reports came out from the government about young adult inequity in oncology, and the number one and number two issues facing young adults 15 to 39 was isolation and access to fertile issues and rights. Those are the number one and number two issues, and that still hasn't changed, but some things have changed. So I'd first like to start with John. Let's hear. I'd love to hear your story. And I didn't realize that you were. Uh, I just call you guys surrogacy success stories. I like that. that. That's my marketing term for you guys. Good term. So, um, so I'd love to start with John. How'd you get? In, obviously, now I know how you got involved. But uh, I think it's a uh, just an amazing story. So go ahead. 
Well, um, I'm a gay dad, and I was probably one of the first in the world to uh, want to have kids and actually go forward with it. So um, my husband and I, we've been together for like 30 years, and we started, oh, 21 years ago to explore this option and signed up with an agency. Um, and we each have a child through the same surrogate mother. So one is biologically mine, one is biologically his through the same surrogate mom. And we have been helping people through surrogate, circle surrogacy for over 17 years now, including Jen. Oh, is that all? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so we'll get to Jen last because you are the, you know, another success story. But Alice, I've known you for quite a while now. I remember meeting you when you were, I think you were still in treatment in Los Angeles, and you were discussing yeah. the idea of my vision and working with the cryobank. And, and look what you've created. You built a small empire. So kudos to you. Let's hear oh, your story. Well, I was diagnosed with breast cancer five years ago, and the first thing that I noticed was the lack of access to fertility preservation options. And we set up a very quickly a pro bono network of egg freezing specialists throughout the country and started to go to work on the advocacy side of fertility preservation legislation. Fast forward a few years and we realized that there's, there's at least half, if not up to 95% of cancer patients who are still unable to take advantage of fertility preservation, even in this day and age with Fertile Hope's great programs, Fertile Action's great programs, and we needed to help women on the other side of cancer survivorship, including those women who's, who have husbands who bank their sperm or have um, sterile husbands who need a third-party reproduction like egg donation, IVF, and surrogacy in order to fulfill their dream of parenthood. So we set up the first grant program in the country for egg donation and surrogacy where we created this community of service providers who donate all their services so that we're able to save couples tens of thousands of dollars when they're attempting to start their family. It's super exciting. We just rolled that out, and we have our first surrogacy recipients through Agency for Surrogacy Solutions in um, there on the West Coast. And we are just about to award our first egg donor grant recipient. We have our first IVF recipient as well. So we're super excited. Well, that's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. So let's turn and, it over. Yeah, and, I, and I'm pregnant, Matt. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh, yeah, you get, and you I'm get pregnant. One of these. I'm, I'm six and a half yeah. weeks pregnant. Wow. And their success story, that's so awesome. The success story there is that I used the embryos that I froze five years ago with a sperm donor. And my husband is awesome, and he um, he allowed us to to move forward with our own, you know, our own path. So I'm a fertility preservation success story. Awesome. Well, we have three success stories, so let's get to our third. My friend Jen Rackman. Hi. Hi. Nine years. Nine years I don't already. deserve to be your friend anymore then. <laughs> I, I was off by four years. I, that's okay, Matt. I forget. Yeah, you. okay. Okay, huh. great. So what can I tell you? Well, I mean, you are like volunteer number like three or something like that. You've been I've around. I've been around for since the inception, I think. I yeah, think, since, since the, like 07 um, when it all the beginning kind of started. Of time. Yes, and I, I'm very connected to stupid cancer, and it has been wonderful for me when I needed it most. So my story is, in a nutshell, is that I'm an ovarian cancer survivor and unfortunately lost my ability to bear children when um, they had to remove my ovaries. So years later, fast forward through treatment and surgeries and whatnot, and here I am, the proud mother of a young young boy who just turned one years old. Yes. Yay. Thanks to John and Sir. Thank you. Thanks to John and Circle Surrogacy, they were able to help us 
connect with our surrogate and walk us through the process. And it really was truly an amazing, life-changing event, something that, you know, at the time of going through cancer and treatment and whatnot just seemed impossible and something that I wasn't quite certain would happen. So here I'm on the other end of it. I like the term surrogacy success mm-hmm. story. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So my first question is for John, just to explain a little bit for our listeners what exactly surrogacy is, how it works, where people start, um, you know, just kind of explain how cancer survivors can get started. Even when you're diagnosed, it's very overwhelming, um, you know, what people should know about surrogacy. Well, the very first thing to know about is the cryopreservation that we've already been talking about because it's so important to think immediately upon diagnosis about saving your eggs if you can, fertilizing them, freezing them for later use. Um, Very often women, breast cancer, um, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, they can uh, still use their uh, eggs and preserve those so that that's a possibility for the future. And then very often, especially if the uterus is removed, they can't carry themselves, but that's where surrogacy comes in. These are wonderful women. Last month we got 1,000 women applying for 12 to 15 positions. We're literally choosing between 1% and 2% of the women who apply, and we're, we're really looking for just the most wonderful people who really want to do this because they want to help another couple and to give that gift of family to somebody special. Um, so it really is an extraordinary experience that we have that many people coming and what they'll do is they'll use the IVF process to take those embryos that they have created or if it's like Jen and you've had ovarian cancer and you can't use your own eggs then the eggs of an egg donor that will come in someone between 20 and 29 to use their eggs to fertilize with your husband's sperm and then implant into the gestational carrier and she'll carry to term. And in most of the states in the United States, this is completely legal. Once you sign the contract, that baby is yours, whether you used your eggs or not. And this is a wonderful opportunity for people to feel like, yes, I have cancer, but no, that doesn't mean I can't have a family. The same thing I experienced, yes, I was gay. No, that didn't mean I couldn't have a family. I really do want to help people in that fashion. So, John, let me just step in real real, uh, quick. I remember when, you know, very vividly, Jen and uh, her husband, Chad, and my wife and I are actually really good friends in real life. And I remember when they were wrangling with, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And when she first discussed with us that she was considering surrogacy, you know, I have obviously I have no experience with that. I don't really have any stigma or predisposition for it. It was just like this really, wow, what does that really mean? Is it going to cost you your life savings? Does insurance cover it? Are there cancer groups out there that can support this? And I understood that, you know, I think it's absolutely fabulous that you serve the gay community. But had you been aware that there is a young adult cancer community out there that are so interested in in understanding their rights for this access? Yes, I have. I mean, we have been working with cancer survivors pretty close to as long as we've been around, and we're by no means, though I'm gay, limited to the gay community, and and, um, what we've had a number of wonderful experiences. We have a child in our program who's 14, who basically was the result of a woman who had cervical cancer, who'd had five prior IVFs, none of which worked, and the very first time with a gestational carrier worked with her own eggs. And another woman who had breast cancer was recently survived, managed to 
freeze um, six eggs, and in eight and a half months after she came in for her appointment, she had a baby. It was just an amazing experience because it literally turned her around and had a surrogate for her the same day. So we've been working with this for a long time. And, you know, I myself just lost my sister to breast cancer about two months ago. So I really understand the importance. But for my sister, her son was the most important thing that ever happened to her. And that's her legacy she's left behind. And he's a wonderful child and, and doing very well. So there's just a lot of really great opportunities for people to have that meaningful experience in their lives as cancer survivors. And my question is for Alice. One of the things that a lot of people are, you know, frightened about and scared off is the cost and how much it's going to, you know, as Matthew says, it's going to cost me my life savings. Am I going to be able to afford when I have these kids to send these kids to college? So tell us a little bit about the grants that you guys offer, the pro bono network you have, you know, just how you help people out financially during such a tough time. Absolutely. I'm I'm happy to answer that. And I, I'd like to actually start by just saying that now that I am pregnant, I have so much respect. I already had so much respect for surrogates, but my gosh, my, my level of respect has, you know, at least quadrupled 100 times over because it's very difficult being pregnant. And these women volunteer to give us the greatest gift that we could ever be, you know, ever be given. And it's just a, it's a, a remarkable thing that they do. You know, the first thing that I say to patients when they come to me is like, oh, my gosh, I'm totally intimidated by the cost, is I actually ask them, what, what, how much was the last car that you financed? Because I think it's really important perspective that we have this sort of position as survivors, like, well, how dare having a, you know, having a child cost me money? I've already been through cancer. And my whole position on that has shifted myself because I looked at all the things that I spend money on in my life, and I thought, gosh, I mean, I've always driven a luxury car. Always, you know, I've always had a five or six hundred dollar car payment. Now that makes probably makes me sound like a snob, but it's just sort of the culture that I was, I was, you know, I kind of, you know, entered into when I was in my twenties and doing very well and succeeding in life. And the reason I bring that up is because I like to keep it in perspective for survivors that you're that when you use third party reproductive medicine, you are going to pay something, and it is a lot of money right out of the gate, and there are financing options available. So there are. You know, kind of, kind of, there are a few avenues for financing it. One is um, using programs like ARC uh, financing, and there are certain fertility clinics that are a part of that, and you can actually apply for fertility loans to help you offset those costs. Then there's our program where you can apply for a grant, and there's other programs like this out there. BabyQuest is another one. They do only IVF. And if you, you know, the unfortunate thing with us is that I want to help every single applicant that comes to us, and unfortunately, I can only help a handful of people per year. Now, granted, the way that we've organized it is that it's really incredible because there's no cash that's paid directly to providers. The IVF physicians, the agencies, the reproductive attorneys, the psychologists, everybody that's involved in doing these types of cycles, the egg donation or surrogacy, they all donate. So in the end, what the patient is, is uh, responsible for, um, what you, a lot of times we're even able to procure medications, the patient's going to be responsible for paying the actual surrogacy fee, and they're also going to be responsible for paying all the ancillary costs that insurance doesn't cover, whatever those health expenses are. So in the case of our first surrogacy applicant, we did um, accept into the program. We're saving them over $50,000 when all is said and done, which is just an amazing amount of money. It is definitely amazing. It's very overwhelming. 
It is. And then, you know, in this day and age, Gen 2, you know, there is, there is global IVF that is becoming more and more popular and accepted. And I do like for all survivors to know that it's an option because you can go to the Ukraine. You can go to India. And there are people here in the States who, who monitor those programs very closely and, you know, who handhold through that process. And so there are creative ways for people to reduce the cost. I think for every survivor, they have to, you know, talk it over, you know, with themselves first and foremost and kind of their support network, including their spouse if they have one or their partner or, you know, whomever is in their life about what really is going to work for them if, you know, going outside of the U.S. makes sense for them, if they're not comfortable with that option. And the most important thing there that John can definitely talk to better is really about the legalities of the hoops that you have to go through in order to make sure that you maintain all the parental rights. Alice, I think that's a really good point that you made earlier about the the way you rationalize the cost. I know a lot of people going into this, especially I had the same concerns that how am I going to afford this? It, it's such an overwhelmingly costly process. But um, when you look at the, the priorities in your life and what's important to you, and you really just can't put a price tag on on creating a family. And as much as, you know, going through cancer and having medical bills and young, all the things that young adults have to have to deal with and then another cost on top of it um i remember and john you know you were great in kind of putting that into perspective for me as well like you know you you take a mortgage out on a house you you take out loans you you borrow from family you do what you have to do if your priority is to become a parent um and thanks mom and dad i know who are chimed in listening right now for helping us out (laughs) (laughs) you know because you know and they were happy to do it they became grandparents for the first time i mean you can't put a price tag on that there's just you know they wouldn't have been able to you know see their grandson born so um oh i mean my student my student loans that i took out were at like the highest interest rate possible i'd have to go back to school to reconsolidate them and get a better interest rate (laughs) so if you look at those other financial decisions in your life and and i and i always encourage you know survivors just look at it through that lens you know yes Yes, we are in this position where we get frustrated, like, oh, I couldn't do it the normal way. But I think the more you focus on what you you can't do and compare yourself to your peers, like with the entire cancer journey, it becomes a it just becomes a hindrance in moving forward. Whereas if we can let go of, I didn't get to do this the quote unquote normal way, then it opens up this whole world of, okay, well, how can I make this work for us financially? Right, and I, I would, let me let, let me just I want to bring John into the conversation because this this raises exactly that point, the issue of entitlement. I'm not going to the takers conversation of the election, but this notion of that you didn't choose, you know, to get cancer. It happened, and it took away your natural right to be a, a parent. You know, you didn't choose to be homosexual. It didn't. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that what can I do now, and am I entitled to it being a little easier for me than if I didn't have to go through having had cancer? John, your thoughts? Well, I, I believe everything that's been said so far. I mean, Circle is very keen this year is hoping to give away um, a cup, two, three, four uh, surrogacies and work with doctors who've agreed to do IVS for free, very much along the lines that Alice is talking, we're always exploring things like Ukraine and India because the laws are good there and people need alternatives. But personally, I borrowed for the first child from my, from my parents' second go-round. I did legal services in exchange for my second baby. And tomorrow I would give up my house, 
my everything for my children. There's no comparison. So I think it is literally the single most important thing you can have in your lives. And yes, it's horrible to have cancer, and it's horrible to have to spend money to have a child that but for the cancer you wouldn't have to do. But don't give up on your dream when it's a possibility. And, and there are just so many ways. I mean, there's tax benefits, too, especially for heterosexual couples that have it medically necessary. We've had a number of people who've been to tax attorneys and gotten $40,000, $50,000 written off in their taxes because of this. So there are lots of avenues to do this. And it's just come in and let's explore it because it's, a, it's, a, it's the best thing that could ever happen to you. And, John, one of my questions for you, and uh, I'm sure you've heard of the BRCA1 mutation, BRCA2 mutation. It's one, of the, it's one of the very many cancer mutations out there. I personally have that one. And what are some of the options available for people who aren't able to use their, you know, whether it's their eggs or their sperm because of, you know, their genetics, whether it be a mutation or something else that could put their offspring at risk for cancer when they're here? Well, so um, BRCA2 is in my family that my sister passed away from, and um, I will tell you that um, one of the things that people can do now is pregenetic diagnosis, or PGD, where they actually can look at the embryos that are created, and one of the things they now can actually screen for is BRCA. Um, and so it is possible for people to actually select which embryos to implant because the child doesn't carry that or because the child is male as opposed to female since the chances for the more seri- more likely to get your cancers are, are for the female side. So these are lo- there are a lot of things that people can do to screen for those things and still potentially have children of their own. Obviously, we've also talked about egg donation and sperm donation, which is another avenue. Are there people out there, this is a total rogue, random, ignorant question, <laughs> who avoid the surrogacy route and just, like, ask their best friend to carry their baby and they get into lots of trouble? Oh, yeah. No, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, I think that people do ask their best friends and they don't get into a lot of trouble. And one of the things that we do regularly is someone will come in with a friend or a sister or whatever it is and we'll write the contracts for them and we'll help them legally through the process. So, no, that's not rogue at all and it's a wonderful gift. It's something to be careful of because it's a huge gift to give and sometimes it's a good idea to pay. It's always a good idea to have a contract because that is absolutely the thing that gives you the right to the child and keeps her from having responsibility. But otherwise, it can be done very inexpensively that way. And especially if you live in a state where IVF is covered by insurance, many states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, some parts of New York will even cover IVF and and even the implantation into a carrier um, can, uh, can, everything but that can be covered. So it can cut down your cost enormously. Well, my wife and I almost had to consider surrogacy or adoption or some alternate form of because it was it was thought that I was just infertile after my treatments, and it was uh, just a surprise that I was what they call like barely fertile uh-huh. <laughs> after like. <laughs> after well, and, fifth, and that's one of the great things about intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where they inject right. sperm into the egg. Now, instead of one out of five men being infertile, it's one out of a hundred thousand men. So male infertility is practically a thing of the past because of right. that one invention. Well, actually, the irony is that it turned out to be my wife's problem. They were able to get enough out of me, but she had a uh, – one of her um, fallopian tubes was um, – I forget the word uh, – coagulated or confabulated or, or something like that. She had some scar tissue from a previous surgery. So she was incapable mm-hmm. of getting pregnant. So we convoluted. That's the word. So we actually had to go the IVF route in general, although, I, again, I was barely fertile. 
but it was definitely something that we talked about for many, many years. How are we going to do yeah. this? How are we going to do this? So I, my, I have a question then, because I remember Jen specifically talking to my wife and I for a long time about the selection of the surrogate. And that is like this huge vetting process, and some of these women are like machines, that, that this is all they do for a living. And a lot of them are Mormon, and a lot of them are like dedicated. Uh, can, John, can you just talk about that, that, that sort of uh, that ecosystem? Well, I think that, you know, when I look at the numbers of women who are applying, there's no question that there are going to be a lot of people out there who are looking for the financial benefit that maybe an extra twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars can do for their lives. But the ones that we're selecting are not only going to be women who've had children before, whose husbands are supportive, who've had uncomplicated pregnancies, who come from the right state, but ones who are really motivated by the gift of giving because you can try this once or twice and it doesn't work and then you're waiting three or six months and you haven't been paid a thing. You can't just be in this for the money and good Lord, it isn't enough money to encourage anybody to do anything. (laughs) Yeah, $25,000 to be in first trimester of pregnancy is not enough money and plus to do all the injections on top of it to prep your uterus and to be the perfect host. You know, that to me, we don't pay them enough. I don't know. After watching my surrogate go through labor, I think that she earned that money just in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it, the, the money, you know, the, you know, and just speaking in, in my experience and in John's, you know, in circles help finding our, bringing us to our surrogate. And, you know, the money, it, of course, it's helpful. Of course, that's a benefit. Um, but I certainly, in my experience in the surrogates that I've met even through her, doesn't seem their primary their primary goal is to help someone have a family. That's what I've noticed, too. I mean, the women that I know that have been surrogates, and then to find out how many times that they've gone through it, I mean, my eyes just get huge. I can't even imagine going through more than one pregnancy myself, you know, and so I look at them, and they're just they're just my heroes. Well, it's definitely in what the Jewish world we would call a mitzvah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> So, Alice, can you, again, I want to, here, here's what I want to spend the rest of the show talking about. Barriers to success. And a lot of this is really in the cancer world because I call this the oh shit week. It may be a week, could be three days, could be three months. It's from the moment you're diagnosed to when treatment actually starts, when the woman, not the man, what's easy for us, is in this crazy-ass narrow window to make decisions about fertility rights and access and her future when, in fact, the doctor may not know to discuss it, the patient may not even know to discuss it, it's not even brought up as a standard of care, and even yeah. if it is, how do you prioritize that over I just want to live? So let's, yeah. let's discuss that. Matt, I'm, so, I'm so glad you brought that up. So, you know, this is one of the most complicated parts of a female's journey through cancer, and there was a study done out of University of California, San Francisco, that showed women were actually choosing less effective forms of treatment if they did not have the chance to pursue fertility preservation. So a woman typically has between four and six weeks before she starts chemotherapy, and that's typical. What's not typical, and this is just statistically speaking, is when you have a leukemic patient who's in the hospital and has to start treatment that day, or when you have someone who is just diagnosed with lymphoma and they're t- being told that they have to start treatment that day or tomorrow. You know, what, what is mostly common is that women have some window where even when you're trying to schedule, in the case of, like, the most common um, young adult female cancer being breast cancer, you're trying to schedule a surgeon and a reproductive surgeon maybe on the same day. 
And it takes like four weeks just to even sync schedules. Because fertility preservation, if someone is going to do egg freezing or embryo freezing, you have to time the start of your, your medications with day three of your period. What that means is that you can't just start somebody on medications just whenever you want. Now, there are new protocols where IVF doctors are doing faster cycling, where they've, they've realized they can kind of what's called downreg a woman's cycle and then speed her up faster to shorten that time. They're a little experimental. People are having success with them. So in those cases, women can actually get to fertility preservation faster and then get to their treatment faster. Because the vast majority of the United States does not cover this as a preventative medicine procedure, that's sort of the next double whammy that a woman faces is, wait, wait a minute, this is going to cost me twelve to $20,000 and I have cancer and insurance isn't going to cover it. And this is where I think that we really do have a medical system breakdown that just like we have a mandate that insures insurance carriers have to cover breast reconstruction in the case of a mastectomy, we should have mandates that allow for a woman to preserve her fertility when she has a 50-50 chance of losing her fertility from cancer treatment. And because science can't predict which women are going to be in the 50% that don't lose their fertility and which women are going to be in the 50% that do, you know, we should offer this as a preventative medicine measure for all women. Jen, your your story, um, what was your oh-shit week, rhetorically speaking? Mm-hmm. My oh-shit week, what, and, you know, like Alice was saying, but that would be great if people were to have the ability to be able to afford and preserve their fertility right off the bat. My oh shit week was um, they didn't even present it to me as an option to preserve my my eggs because the cancer was in my ovaries and they thought if they stimulated me that that could stimulate the cancer. And then as soon as the oncologist hears that, that that's a possibility, it's, it's off the table. It's not even up for discussion. Right. So that wasn't... Well, that- and it's- it's kind of amazing, too, Jen, that like nine years ago, how much things have changed to now. And that in some cases, like I had a friend, she just she did try stimming through her ovarian cancer. She just didn't stim well, and they had to cancel her cycle. You know, but they're learning so many things now. And what happens is you know, we don't have a mechanism to educate oncologists on the new information. So your oncologist is probably still handling those cases the same way that, he, that they always did. Yes, and, you know, oncologists have their own agenda. Their agenda is to rid us of cancer as quickly as possible and, you know, to not do anything that might seem risky. So they're going to give the most conservative, at least my doctors were given the most conservative, you know, for ovarian cancer, standard treatment is uh, hysterectomy automatically. That's, you know, that's what they recommend right off the bat. I actually had to really push to preserve my uterus because I couldn't really understand why they were asking me to remove it. I said, is there cancer there? You know, what's the risk of me getting cancer there? What if I do want to eventually carry a pregnancy. I just at least yeah. allow myself to have the option. I think for me during my oh shit week it was kind of let me advocate for myself as much as possible because at least that's something that I can do that might leave me with options. Sadly down the road I really couldn't get anyone to support that idea and I think even for yeah. myself I came to a point where I said you know what I don't know that it's worth the risk and let's look at other options. So you know down the road it came to you know, a little bit more clarity on that but yeah. at that time I think there was just not enough conversation about it that's what i'm really finding there's like you know still 50 percent of oncologists don't have a conversation at all you know and then and you know fertile action is working on more resources for the oncology community in general i go in and i educate social workers oncology nurses 
oncologists themselves. You know, we put together these kind of meet and greets for private physicians um, in the RE, in the reproductive community to meet with oncologists, and all with that intention that, that there has to be a mechanism with which they and each of these cancer centers have very thorough conversations as best as they can and get you to a reproductive endocrinologist as fast as possible just so you understand. I mean, you had a right to, Jen, to understand how is menopause at your age going to impact the rest of your life. You need to understand that. It's also really important for people to understand that even if you can't have a biological child, that you're going to still love that child just as much. I have one biological child and one non, and I don't love one more or less than the other, and I know how much Jen adores her child, and it's just so important to to realize that even if they can't, even if they're not fertile, even if they can't, that this is just the most incredibly successful way. We have nearly 100% success in the United States um, with surrogacy, and everyone comes out of the process happy, and whether they use an egg donor or not, it's just an incredible experience for everyone involved, and it shouldn't be passed up because having children is what's enjoyable. It's not whether they're genetically related to you. Nobody even thinks about that afterwards. Yeah, it's very true, and I think that we also have to give them a chance to grieve for so many things, and that's one of the first things that I say to to women when I'm counseling them, you know, on whether or not they do have the time to do fertility preservation is the message is there's lots of ways to have a family, and ultimately I want them to make sure they stay focused on the vision of themselves as a mom. And however that child, you know, comes to them could be, you know, many different ways, but also to just honor that there is a grieving that often comes with, um, you know, with giving up whatever avenue it is on the path to parenthood. So, you know, for one of my friends, she had to give up, um, you know, first the idea that she was going to have a partner, so she got a sperm donor. You know, then her the embryos didn't work with her own egg, so she had to then go grieve the idea that she wouldn't be a biological parent if she had an egg donor and a sperm donor. You know, and then she had to grieve the loss of not getting to carry her child. You know, and and every sort of stage, there was another grieving, but it was a letting go. And the letting go allowed her to get to the next phase where there was acceptance and joy and excitement and enthusiasm for the path that she was embarking on. And ultimately now she's the most beautiful seven-month-old baby boy in the world. Sperm donor, egg donor, and surrogate. John, quick question. Um, uh, I know you're considering, like, entering the world of young adult cancer which I think is amazing, you know, bringing the knowledge and wisdom that your company has to the attention of this, you know, uh, 800,000-person community in the United States. Um, In your experience in dealing with other, obviously, uh, fertile-aged, infertile young adults, uh, have you found that you've had to become, like, aware of other cancer organizations, or have you been able to partner with, other fertility groups out there, what, what, what is the way in which you feel that you could best engage industry to serve this population? Oh, I mean, I think that one of the ways is, you know, the, the stupid cancer show that Jen is going to and getting our, the word out there. Another way is this kind of 
press that's so important to have, you know, aired for people and, you know, offering services for free. And, you know, when we start doing that, uh, definitely reaching out to different cancer organizations. But the key is absolutely getting the doctors to talk early to people about this and to understand that this is an option for people. So it isn't just reaching out to the patients themselves who have to fight for themselves when they're still reeling from the news, but actually going to the doctors who really think along those lines from the very beginning so that they are thinking about that treatment, realizing that so many of these people are surviving today and want to live a normal life. Um, you know, it's just, it, it, it's remarkable. So to talking to the physicians, I think, is the key. Right, and and do you find yourself needing to maybe you know, do, do physicians take what you do seriously? Is there still I I mean that with with love? Is there um is there a stigma around this service? Is there uh, a misperception about what value you do have to patients in the physician community? I think there used to be, and there isn't anymore. I mean, I think one of the very first occasions I had was for an eighteen-year-old woman with cervical cancer who, you know, needed to find a friend to fertilize her eggs, and then she froze the remainder, and that was close to 20 years ago, and the doctors at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston were just fantastic about mentioning that possibility to her, but not everybody is, and I think that a lot of doctors who aren't familiar with it are afraid of it, but it has been going on now for 33, 34 years in the United States, and it has literally never had a case in which a gestational carrier has gotten rights to a child in any of the 45 states that permit surrogacy. So it is an incredible, you know, secure thing, and oftentimes the doctors just don't know the law, so they shy away from it. But, in fact, this is part of the education that we need to do, and, and uh, we, I definitely go around lecturing to doctors and going to um, doctor conferences to let them know about these things so that they're not afraid because there really isn't any reason to be. My question is, we'll ask Jen first. So one of the things I always wondered, um, I guess because my first time I ever heard about a surrogate gestational carrier was when Phoebe had her brother's babies on Oh, oh we made plenty of friends <laughs> references throughout the process. So I want to know, know what it's like being on the other side waiting to find out if your surrogate's pregnant. Oh, that day was such a, such a great day. I, I went to work that day, but I purposely chose to isolate myself because mm -hmm. I was anxious. I was excited, but I was anxious because I was fearing the disappointment if she if it if the you right. know, it, the process didn't take and what that would be like to to have a letdown and go through it again. So I preferred not to do that in front of any of my coworkers. Right. Um but she she was as impatient as we were to get the results. So you know, she went and took her her test at the doctors and we were waiting to get the response from the doctor's office. But she couldn't wait and she took a home pregnancy test and uh -huh. even though those don't always show so early. Um, she texted me a picture of the test and that it was positive. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, we were all on pins and needles. And it was, I mean, I, so I was by myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm hugging myself because I have to go somewhere. <laughs> I have to go somewhere to share this wonderful news. Yeah. Um, so it was nerve-wracking because, but then again, at that point, it was like, what's the worst that can happen? If it doesn't take, we'll do it again. Right, you know, right. eventually this will get us to the, you know, to the place that we want to be. So it was wonderful. Very happy day. Yes. No, this is this is this is an important discussion, and I know that we're going to be discussing it at the Vegas conference. Jen, you are going to be, uh, I will be there. making a special guest appearance. I'm very excited. And John, you're coming. 
Um, I haven't, I don't know yet. Jen and I have been talking about it, and I know that Jen is attending for us, but um, I am just back from Australia, and so I'm going to try. I, I, I haven't promised, but, I, but, I, but we're talking about it, and if it's important for me to be there, absolutely. Be well, back. I can assure you that the inebriation that you will experience <laughs> in Vegas will far outweigh the jet lag. <laughs> there's no greater party than a cancer survivor party. Uh-huh. No, there's true? nothing like it. In Vegas. Yes. <laughs> It's definitely going to no more. Uh, it's the best off-color humor you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. From someone who's been there, Alice. <laughs> yes. So, all right. Well, again, I think this is an incredibly important discussion. I'm glad we were able to dedicate the show to it. I can't thank you guys enough for making the time to come on the show. Any uh, final thoughts, Alice? What's uh, what's going on? What's the future of Fertile Future? Fertile Action and Fertile Future. So Fertile Future is California Cryobank's um, fertility preservation program, and right. Fertile Action is the nonprofit, and we work really closely together to make sure that we're offering financial aid for people. You know, Matthew, you just continue to, you know, put the important conversations out there and let us all kind of climb on your coattails and, and ride this ride with you. And, you know, the more people that are having this conversation across the country and various, the more repetitive it is, the better. I think, you know, the future for Fertile Action is um, we're going to start certifying people in oncofertility in 2014. And I think once we do that and we're partnered up with, you know, the Oncology Nursing Society and all the other associations and societies in the country to offer this certification program to people, we're going to see some permanent change. That's pretty awesome. Uh, well, again, I, again, I can't thank you guys enough. Jen, any final thoughts? I'm just really thrilled that this topic came to light and we kind of put it together and yeah. it's really great to, to be able to be a part of putting the word out there yep. about about these options for people. And I so again, just you. my final thought is I remember we did a public service announcement two years ago here in the radio studio, um, actually it was across the hall, and you and Chad were part of the PSA and it was, it was a, an, an It's Not Okay themed and the story was that, you know, that you're going to be a mom someday. It's gonna happen, and you made, mm-hmm. and it happened, and it's just so prophetic and and wonderful. And I remember doing that past PSA, and it being really challenging for me because yeah. I remember wanting that to happen and not and, and not really sure if it was definitely going to happen, and it being right. really challenging to do and to see everything come to fruition over time. It's been and now you wonderful. have all the poop you could ever ask for. <laughs> lots of poop. Yes. There's lots of poop involved. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and and Alice, you soon will have all the poop you could ever ask yeah. for. Oh yeah, that's good. I'm all I'm nausea happy, that I can very happy to be past poop. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also <laughs> I have to, from my perspective, being you know just barely out of treatment and remembering how raw that moment was of being diagnosed and the first thing you think of is am I ever going to be a mom? Sorry. It makes you a little dusty. Yeah. It gives me it makes me happy to see all you guys. Oh, that's oh. awesome. And he's tearing up for all the right reasons. <laughs> oh, I know. That's beautiful. But awesome. yeah. always, I always say be not afraid. You have to go for what you really want more than anything in the world and whatever the challenges are, you absolutely have to just take it by the horns get the information and do what's best for you and and you just can't give up. Indeed. Yeah, it's your right. It, it's your right, Annie. It'll happen. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and I, will, and I will hunt you guys down when that day comes <laughs> and find us. We won't even need to hunt us. That's right. True. Be we will here. Be here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Keep in touch. We'll see you in Vegas. Hopefully, John, I'm looking Absolutely. at you, John. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alice thank Tracy, you, John Weldon, and Jen Rackman. Thank, thank you, guys. You so much. Thank you.
Well, was it good for you? It was great. It was good for me. Everybody. Amazing. Kenny, you want to have a baby? <laughs> Dear God. Allie, you ready for poop? Oh, hell no. <laughs> Pooptopia? I have dual poop. <laughs> That's the one thing I'm not looking forward to. What, dual poop? Having twins? I mean, I'd love to have twins. That's like my dream. Right. But um, I, I don't know how I would handle the... I always thought, like, I've always wanted twins. And before breast cancer, I always thought, like, that'd be creepy to be breastfeeding twins at the same time. So I don't really have to worry about that anymore. But now I'm, I guess I'm just kind of scared of the dual diapers and the dual potty training. Right. Okay. Anyway. Well, um, okay. Prepare to there activate. we go. Prepare to activate. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, number 254. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. Special thanks to Gabrielle Union, Jen Rackman, John Weltman, Alice Treacy for being our guest tonight. And for next week's show, join us to be profiled C4YW, the conference for young women affected by breast cancer, produced by Living Beyond Breast Cancer and the Young Survival Coalition. Joining us will be Stacey Lewis from YSC, Elise Kaplan from uh, Living Beyond Breast Cancer will be our guest. Also, Jeff Tomchek, freelance writer and founder of CB, C2B Scene, is in our Survivor Spotlight. All righty, folks. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org. Or check out all of the shows on the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, Allie Ward, Maddie Beckett, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, everybody. Good night. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.